Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and Josh, I'll never forget your birthday. Oh, so considerate of you. And that is because in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we are talking about the films of 1984. And this episode is our first feature spotlight, looking at the debut feature from a notable filmmaker. And here we are talking about John Hughes's first film as a director, 16 Candles, in which poor Molly Ringwald is neglected. And her whole family forgets her birthday. But if Jason was in her family, that wouldn't have happened. How could you forget Molly Ringwald's birthday? Even just watching this movie, you could see on those close-ups how every guy in America could have a... Teenage guy in America could have a crush on her during this time period, huh? I agree. She's definitely the best part of this movie. She is... Yeah, I think we talked about... We just talked about... Uh, in our last episode about Beverly Hills Cop and and how big of a star Eddie Murphy, I mean, he already was, but kind of became even more so from this. And and I think you can see here how this is a star-making role and performance from Molly Ringwald. She just is fantastic here. And and of course, very beautiful. And I think you're right that it it certainly launched many a teenage boy's crush on her at the time that it was released. Yeah, but Josh, I do have to take exception with one thing you said. I think Anthony Michael Hall is just as big a breakout star from this thing. He's really, really good in this film. Yeah, he certainly, this certainly was a big breakout for him as well. And and both of them, I mean, we'll get to this later, but uh, this movie helped both of them go on to become, you know, icons of teen movies in the 1980s. Um, absolutely. Yeah, and they're both it, attached to... John Hughes throughout that uh, iconic phase of their career. They are, yeah. I mean, the the three of them collaborated very well uh, over the course of of the eighties going forward from this film, and and in in bigger hits, this movie, I mean, has become kind of a a teen classic, um, and it was a decent moderate size hit. It grossed twenty three point seven million dollars on its budget of six point five million, so it wasn't necessarily like a massive phenomenon, but I think. It it permeated the culture over time, and it did lead to much bigger things for for everyone, for for John Hughes and for Molly Ringwald and for Anthony Michael Hall. And this is another one that I think we've talked about a lot, especially in our our seasons on the '90s, where once home video was a thing, and this movie came out on home video, I think so many teenagers were renting it, and that helped it uh, kind of endure over time. I agree, and also Josh, you know, 1984. It's not like today you could make a movie for six and a half million, get 24, 25 million back and be like, hey, that worked out pretty well, you know, as opposed to like, oh, what? We didn't make six hundred million dollars. I'm a right. studio executive. This is how I talk. <laughs> I mean, I didn't I didn't mean to imply this movie wasn't successful. It absolutely was. But it, it wasn't necessarily like a, a success on the scale of, say, Beverly Hills Cop that we just talked about. At the top of the box office for 1984. No, no, you were you were clear. It it did all right. Did well at the box office. Did well enough, and then just all over TV and pay TV and home video, man. Right, and that 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 certainly helped cement it as this major classic of the teen movie era. And critics were 
mostly positive about it, but kind of mixed. And I think as often happens with movies about teenagers, a lot of the tone of these reviews is like, what is up with kids today? Um, which is always, <laughs> I'll tell you, cause I'm a studio exec. Right. So Roger Ebert said, this is a fresh and cheerful movie with a goofy sense of humor and a good ear for how teenagers talk. It doesn't hate its, its characters or condescend to them the way a lot of teenage movies do. Instead, it goes for human comedy and finds it in the everyday lives of the kids in its story. Sixteen Candles contains most of the scenes that are obligatory in teenage movies. The dance, the makeout session, the party that turns into a free-for-all. But writer and director John Hughes doesn't treat them as subjects for exploitation. He listens to these kids. And I think even though John Hughes only actually probably worked on a, a small number of teen movies, that's really the reputation that he has for, for being sort of sensitive about the teenage experience. Yeah, I think in the Close Encounters episode, I had mentioned that Steven Spielberg was the best director for kids. I think John Hughes is the best director for teenagers that there ever was based on his understanding of them, his writing of them, and also uh, his relationship and his ability to get performances from them. Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely want to give credit to him, uh, along with Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall, that being able to get those performances, and especially Anthony Michael Hall was was just starting out at this point, being able to get those performances out of them and and show off their star quality was an important thing that John Hughes was able to do. And even just in the casting, talking about casting Anthony Michael Hall and seeing that all of these people who came in and played this stereotypical, like nerdy, geeky type were wrong for it. And Anthony Michael Hall brought something different to the role and that he was the right choice for it. You know, that's all on John Hughes right there. Right. And, you know, not to jump ahead, but if you watch this and then The Breakfast Club back to back, you're seeing real depth of performance and differences in the characters that they're both playing. Yeah, that's true. And I think, you know, you can see the evolution there of their careers as well as of John Hughes. Um, and this is a bit rough as a start, I think. And uh, Gary Arnold in the Washington Post gets to that a little bit. He says, comedy writer John Hughes, now making his directorial debut, displays a light, leafy touch handling his own satiric idiom and situations which revolve around the abiding frustrations and consolations of suburban adolescence and, and family life. Hughes isn't vigilant or deft enough to prevent the dramatic focus of attention from shifting at about the halfway point. He can't quite finesse the letdown that sets in when the engaging teenage heroine, Samantha, delightfully embodied by Molly Ringwald, is allowed to become almost a subsidiary character in the second half of the story. Nevertheless, Sixteen Candles blends an idiosyncratic screwball imagination with a flair for updated domestic comedy and scenes of intimate, quirkily affectionate character interplay. Hughes keeps his feet on the ground while indulging comic exaggerations, perhaps because he views both suburban settings and family circles as rich, comfortable, reassuring hotbeds of wackiness. And to me, that was one of the most frustrating things about this movie is how much it is not about Molly Ringwald's character. I agree that that and it's very unlike John Hughes. He's such a good writer and gets the, you know, the formula down so easily in so many movies for him to spend the first half basically about her and then move away from her for so long. I don't get me wrong. Like I said, I really like Anthony Michael Hall, but I like the stuff with them interacting together the most. So I wish that 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 was the case as well, that we stuck with her 
more than than we did. Yeah, I mean, and I realized this was a breakout for Anthony Michael Hall, but I just was not really interested in anything that was happening to his character. And every time the movie goes away from her, and again, especially in the second half, it spends a lot of time with him doing other things where Samantha isn't involved. Um, I just, I just really lost a lot of interest. And there's so much stuff with her family, and there's way too many family members, and just a lot of it felt extraneous, and it, it took away from the strength of the central story, I think. I, I think that's fair at the same time. You know, look, it's a John Hughes movie. There's always going to be wacky older relatives coming to town or something like that. So that's a big thing. He's He's got big Midwestern families in a lot of his films. But I do think, going back to what you're saying, like the most interesting stuff with Anthony Michael Hall happened in regards to his interactions with the Molly Ringwald character. And I, I would have liked more focus on that as well. Yeah. Pauline Kael in The New Yorker, as I think is often the case uh, with Pauline Kael, seems to be ashamed of herself for liking this movie. Um, <laughs> she says, 16 Candles is about suburban Chicago teenagers, but it's less raucous in tone than most of the recent teen pictures. It's closer to the gentle English comedies of the 40s and 50s. It doesn't amount to much, and it's certainly not to be confused with a work of art or a work of any depth. But the young writer-director John Hughes has a knack for making you like the high school age characters better each time you hear them talk. Hughes has a feeling for verbal rhythms, and he knows how kids toss words around, especially the words that set them apart from their elders. What gives Sixteen Candles its peppiness is his affection for teenagers' wacko slang, phrases carrying such strong positive and negative charges that they have a dizzy immediacy. And again, Pauline Kael is great, of course, but I, I do love her. And she wrote a very long, like a lot of the reviews that Pauline Kael did were in these little short capsules that she wrote for the New Yorker in their around town segment. But then she would write these longer essays and she devoted one of her full, very long reviews to this movie. So she clearly found it interesting. But again, I feel like she's she's approaching it as if she's sort of an anthropologist examining teenagers in America. Yeah. Let me ask you three questions here, Josh, on <laughs> yes. this review. One, do you have any reference point to the British, I guess, were there even, were they teen comedies of the 40s and 50s? I don't know that genre. I mean, I don't think she's referring to teen comedies, more just comedies in general, but I don't. And she doesn't, I mean, like I said, this is a longer piece, but she never references any specific films there. So I'm not entirely sure what she's referring to. Okay. Two, does she mention any of the wacko slang terms that the kids are throwing around? She talks about she talks about Anthony Michael Hall's character and how he's part of the new computer age, and he says that that he that he and and uh, and and Samantha will be interfacing later. That's the one thing that I remember she cites. Wow, there. that is wacko. And yeah. Josh, three, she's kind of a bit of a dickhole in this review, isn't she? By <laughs> saying like, don't get this confused with like a work of art or anything that has any depth whatsoever, that's unfair and also not true. Um, uh, I mean, I agree that she's being kind of condescending, which is kind of her deal uh, a lot of the time, but I don't disagree with her assessment of the film. You don't think any of the characters have any depth? I mean, I think... Some of the, I think Molly Ringwald, I think Samantha has some depth, but I don't think the movie necessarily has much depth. Well, she's in the movie. <laughs> she, she is in the movie. I think they're like, I think they're, that character has more depth than the overall story does, than the, the movie does itself. And I don't think that's necessarily like a problem, 
I think you can watch a, a comedy that's funny and you laugh the whole time and it doesn't have to be deep in order for you to enjoy it. But I don't think that that this is a movie that necessarily has a lot of stuff going on below the surface per se, as much as maybe other John Hughes films have. I mean, I will say, you know, to, to sort of telegraph this, that, that I did not like this movie this time. So that was kind of part of my reaction there. Well, this has <laughs> taken a turn, hasn't it, Dave? <laughs> um, but Jason, had you, uh, had you seen this movie? I you mean, know, did you see it as a teenager? You know, it's funny, Josh. You know, I love John Hughes and have seen so many of his movies. I'd actually never seen 16 Candles. So this was my first viewing of it. All right. Yeah, I think I had, I mean, we talked about this a bit with Beverly Hills Cop, where I think this is a movie that was so popular, as you mentioned, on television that I'm sure I had seen bits of it on TV as a teenager, but I had not sat and watched it all the way through until a few years ago when I uh, watched a bunch of John Hughes movies uh, at the same time that for some reason. And I remember kind of liking it back then, but this time I just... It just didn't work for me. And I, I don't like I don't like John Hughes nearly as much as you do, but I do like John Hughes and I just didn't care. For which ones movie. did you watch in your your? I mean, I think at the time I watched this and I watched The Breakfast Club and I watched Weird Science because I had maybe gotten some promotional box set and I had never seen any of them before. And so I watched them all at I mean, I think it was probably a good 10 years ago at this point. But, you know, I was still an adult. It wasn't when I was a teenager. And th they were all movies that I think similarly I had seen bits and pieces of, but had never watched all the way through. And so I decided to watch them all at that time. And I mean, I think of those three, The Breakfast Club is the best one, but I, I only revisited 16 Candles this time, of course. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> so much to contemplate there, Jason. How about um, you, Dave? I, I'm pretty sure I had seen this as a kid, but it, I didn't really remember much of it. I remember little bits and pieces. You yeah, know? it's it's again, it's the kind of thing that I think there's there's clips of it all the time. And, you know, if you watched uh, I Love the 80s or something like that, I'm sure they were showing clips from 16 Candles on there. Mm -hmm. So is there any other background here you want to talk about, Jason? Well, you mentioned The Breakfast Club, Josh. That was actually the one that Hughes wanted to shoot first. And it turned out that this was the one in his very successful partnership with Ned Tannen and Michelle Manning and Channel Productions that he did. And yeah, this was like a three-picture deal for him with Universal. And uh, Anthony Michael Hall and John Capellas were the only two actors in all three of those movies that you just mentioned right there. So that's kind of fun. Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall both won the Young Artist Award for Best Young Actor and Best Actress. And the Entertainment Weekly ranked this number 49 on the list of 50 best high school movies. I'm surprised they found 48 better movies that they say are better from high school. Get out of here, Entertainment Weekly. Get out of here. I'm I'm less surprised by that, honestly. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I think there are... It, you know, at least a couple of John Hughes movies that are better. High school. I, I agree with that. I certainly don't think this is John Hughes' best movie and not his best high school movie, but I don't think there are 48 better high school movies. Well, I guess we'll have to just do a podcast where we watch all of those movies and rank them Ooh. accordingly. All right. Now we, uh, we're set for the rest of this season, I'd say. Yeah, and, and, and many more to come. So... Uh, this is just one really long season. Yeah, it's just going to be, or it'll just be one episode where we talk about 49 movies. 
I got some editing to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll come back then and talk about our general thoughts on 16 Candles. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1984, we're taking a look at a notable debut from a major filmmaker, and that is John Hughes's 16 Candles, which was his first film as a director, but he'd written a couple of very successful movies before this. He wrote uh, National Lampoon's Vacation and Mr. Mom, and was a writer for National Lampoon, so was already a pretty established success at this point. And Jason, as you mentioned, um, this was the first of a three-picture deal that he made, so it wasn't like he was a nobody coming in to direct his first film. Yeah, I mean, he was a comet, wasn't he? The ascent that he took in the 80s and I guess through like the early 90s is just, I still say, unheard of in, in film. And the way he was able to shift kind of from those uh, adult family movies to the teen movies to the more family-friendly movies. Like, just such an amazing career. And there's some warts on there, and, you know, we'll talk about that, too. And it's weird now, you know, because everyone romanticizes this kind of, the work that he did with the teenagers. But at the same time, he was a man in his 30s just hanging out with teenagers, and and everyone was like, oh, that's cool. He's getting a lot out of them. And, you know, I don't think someone could do that today, Josh. Yeah, and I think that you're you're you get to a good point here about people romanticizing the John Hughes teen movies, and I, I feel like sometimes the idea of those movies is more appealing than the movies themselves. And certainly, that to me was the way with this film coming to it that there are so many problematic elements that I think that overshadowed to me the the good elements of this movie, but not only the the sort of things that we cringe at now from a sort of social perspective. But the filmmaking in this movie, to me, is really rough and clumsy. The pacing is bad, and he telegraphs the jokes so heavily. Every joke has to have an associated sound effect, like this is some sort of Looney Tunes cartoon. I I just thought it was the mark of someone who's, again, as a first-time director, maybe it's trying a little too hard, and he was able to pull back and be a little subtler in his other films as a director. And there's nothing subtle about this movie at all. And I just, I just found it more irritating than enjoyable, even though I think that the scent, if you boil it down to the central story about Samantha feeling neglected by her family because they forgot her birthday and her growing pains as a teenager, I think that stuff is strong and Molly Ringwald is really good and there's some sensitive portrayals there, but there's so much other stuff in this movie that it really overshadowed that for me. Well, you just named a lot of things, Josh. So which one do you want me to jump into? <laughs> Whichever you feel uh, the most strongly about. Okay, well, let's... You're right. He does go overboard with these sound effects and kind of um, musical cue references uh, to TV shows. But that that does become kind of a trademark of his. At the same time, he shows such growth from this into The Breakfast Club which is basically a single location movie. And I would say like the, if you want to call this clumsy, that's fine. Like, but that is so expertly directed. It's really, really amazing. The growth that he shows in a year, you know, as a director. And then I would say, you know, going back to that book that I've referenced, the ultimate history of the 80s teen movie by James King, 
the camera movement, the the way things are framed, shot, maybe not the best, but what's filling the frame is really interesting. The use of close-ups to make these, maybe that's kind of that reference to that 40 and 50 style, the way that he makes these people uh, who we didn't really know at the time look like movie stars, the performances he gets out of them. Uh, those are all great. And and so that, that would be my counter to that. The problematic elements, I cannot counter. And uh, I think Molly Ringwald's talked about it and other people. And sadly, John Hughes died before we were able to get his referendum on it. You know, I think, as we said in the last episode, this is 1984. We're going to run into a lot of movies and we're going to we're going to just say like, hey, there's problematic elements in this and that. And for you, it was too much to get past in this one. And I understand that. But yeah, I can't I can't defend any of those things at this point. Yeah, I mean, and I think. You're right that certainly there were different standards in 1984, and it's interesting to read on the one hand some of the reviews that I found that don't even mention Long Duck Dong, the uh, Getty Watanabe character who's this just horrifying Asian stereotype. But there were certainly people at the time who were offended about that. It's not like people were unaware of this being offensive. And so I think it's 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 too tempting maybe to let these movies off the hook. And And I think there are plenty of movies from this time period that handle this stuff better, more gracefully, that are more sensitive about it. So it's not like it was impossible. It's not like people were unaware of the way to do this. And so I think that to me is, it's just, it's also lazy. It's this reliance on these really, even at the time, outdated stereotypes. And Long Duck Dong is a huge aspect of this movie. He's not just a character who is comic relief in one scene. He is a major character throughout the film and is always portrayed that way. Um, I mean, other aspects that we would think of as, as problematic, I think, are maybe a little easier to get past. I mean, there's a, the homophobic slur that the characters used to insult each other that was used commonly throughout the 80s and 90s by people, teenagers insulting each other. And that's just the way that they talked. And and there's a definite undercurrent of uh, date rape involved in the the storyline between uh, Farmer Ted and uh, Caroline, the girlfriend of of Jake Ryan, and and that is sort of uh, vague enough that you can maybe find a way to justify it. But I think all of it adds up to just a, a sour tone to the movie for me. I can understand that. And okay, so taking those things apart. Yeah, Long Duck Dung kind of falls in that category of, I would say, the Nadia character in American Pie from, you know, 15 years later, where it was a, such a big hit. And now you look back and you're like, oh, he filmed uh, her taking her clothes off without cons- consent and broadcast it to everyone. And they were like, what? How was this? But it was, like you said, it was accepted. It was a big hit. And uh, no one really questioned it. I don't know why. But uh, so that's one thing. The use of the the word fag, faggot, whatever we know was prevalent, not cool, prevalent, whatever. But uh, you're right there. And I, I, I was left questioning, you know, we know that Farmer Ted and Caroline sleep together and they both they both kind of wake up and they're like, I think we did. I think we did. And it's like. Um, I was unsure why Farmer Ted would have forgotten that was I mean, he was drinking, but I, I, I don't know. It seemed like they were both like really happy that they slept together. So 
that that is a murky murky one to cover there. Yeah, it is, and that is a weird thing because it's established that she's clearly like completely blackout wasted, but he seems to be perfectly in control of his faculties and he's driving a car and we do see him drinking one drink earlier, but there's never any indication that he's so drunk that he's going to forget everything or or even that he's drunk at all. So that's weird. And even before that, before the scene where they wake up and they they say that they slept together and they don't remember it where you wonder, you know, are either of them maybe in that case able to give consent? But even before that point, his intention, you know, Jake basically tells him like, oh, she's so blitz that you can do anything you want with her. And that's mm-hmm. these characters that we're meant to like who are setting themselves up like this is an okay thing to do. And like, we're kind of rooting for Ted to be able to do that because we like him and we want him to get laid. And so that to me is almost more problematic than the thing that happens later where you get the sense that neither of them really knew what they were doing. So all of that, again, I feel like it just adds up to not liking that character that we're meant to like. It's weird when you think back on how many movies, you know, we talked about Heathers and uh, Winona Ryder said that that date rape scene was like her favorite thing because of the commentary it was making. And like, yeah, it was just... well, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, day rape was, I mean, going back to Animal House, right? Very popular comedic trope to use in teen and college movies. And you can't say anything except that's what it was in these movies, right? So I can totally get it because I think like Anthony Michael Hall, like, you know, as he's going after the Molly Ringwald character, and then he does that great dance sequence on the floor that he ends up doing by himself, right? But yeah, I don't I don't I really don't know, man. I don't, I get it. I get it how you could sour on it. I guess I'm just trying to look at the things that I think I liked about it and then also because every single high school mu- movie from this point on is basically influenced by. Yeah, although I mean I would argue that those movies are maybe more influenced by The Breakfast Club and by Ferris Bueller's Day Off and by later John Hughes movies yeah. than, than I mean, they are. They're by all this they're one. all John Hughes and that's the thing is like, are you separating it or are you putting it all in the John Hughes teen? I mean, he had his own genre, right? So it's tough to separate it into one when it's all like kind of a collection in that way. I mean, we're talking about this movie here, and I think there's nothing wrong with like, you can separate it. This is a movie. It's its own entity. And we can say that regardless of what he did later, that this movie to me is not very good. And I think beyond, I mean, we're talking a lot about these problematic elements, but I think, again, beyond that, to me, just the filmmaking in this movie is not that good. The the overuse of the sound effects, the way that he hammers those jokes and is unable to kind of trust his own humor, the pacing, the too many characters, losing sight of the central storyline, like all of that stuff was also bad and bothered me watching the movie just as much as those problematic elements, it all kind of added up to really not much enjoying the experience. Okay, that is fair, like we've said. And if I was going to look at the positives, I would say, you know, besides the the Anthony Michael Hall and Molly Ringwald characters, I do like the dialogue. I like the interaction with the family a lot. And um, the soundtrack is not, you know, we're talking, we're going to talk about this a lot. Like, this is another soundtrack that like changed the entire way that soundtracks were used in the in movies, especially in teen movies going forward. So I just think there was enough positive here 
maybe I'm looking back at it with a fondness because of all the movies that I love that it's influenced, you know? Um, and I agree with you as a single movie, this doesn't make maybe not even the top five of John Hughes movies for me. It doesn't make the top five, but yeah, I just, I, I guess I just have such a fondness for him that I'm going to try to take the, the, uh, the pro Hughes, uh, side of this one, even though your, your points are valid, Josh. Yeah. And again, I'm not anti Hughes. I mean, I don't know if I would feel as positively about some of those other movies. I mean, it's been a while since I've seen any of them. Uh, if I went and watched The Breakfast Club now or Ferris Bueller, which I remember really liking and seeing a bunch of times as a kid, if I would still like those as much. But I, I, I feel like there's more. And, you know, we talked about, we did an episode on Christmas Vacation, which John Hughes wrote, but did not direct. And I thought that movie was great. And so I feel like there are a lot of strengths to John Hughes's work, including some of the stuff that doesn't work here. Like you mentioned the big family visits, and that's something that you get in those vacation movies. And I thought of Home Alone as I was watching this movie, because there's so much in that movie about the crazy family like packing into the house and too many people being in the house at once and having to sleep in different bedrooms. And I mean, again, another movie that John Hughes wrote, but didn't direct. And I feel like even in Home Alone, which is as broad as broad comedies get, the family stuff is funnier and more effectively integrated than it is here. So we have to talk about a few things there. Um, I did watch The Breakfast Club like right after this. And I'm in the middle of Pretty in Pink. I'm going to just watch a bunch of them. And then every year on the holidays, I watch Planes, Trains, and Automobiles for Thanksgiving, starting last year. And uh, <laughs> Quite a, uh, a, a, quite a, a venerable <laughs> tradition. There. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, Home Alone, we watch, you know, uh, all the time for Christmas. I have a young daughter. And so... My point is, like, I really, he is great at making things that you can watch and repeat viewing. Breakfast Club is really good. I still think it's a really good movie. And it's, like I said, it shows a, a ton of growth from that, from this to that. Ferris Bueller, I watched maybe a year or two ago. Probably the best 80s teen movie that was made, I'd say. It's almost a perfect movie. I think that's like, he got it all right. And then lastly, Josh, we're talking about a man whose influence is so much that you're mentioning things like Home Alone or Christmas Vacation that he didn't direct, but that are still part of that John Hughes brand. And part of that is like kind of like a Spielberg or a Lucas where like, yes, he has his hand in those movies as a producer, right? Like he hired Christopher Columbus to direct this or Howard Deutsch to direct Pretty in Pink and you're still getting John Hughes, the vision that he wanted to get across. But he has one of the most distinct voices in, in film history. But I do wonder if maybe it's better when the, that is filtered through another director. That's fair. That's a totally fair point. I think, I think in some of the teen ones, it wouldn't have been. I don't think a director could have done Breakfast Club better because you needed that emotional resonance that he clearly understood with his actors. and then. Ferris Bueller, he just knocked out of the park, right? So, you know, planes, trains, and automobiles, I would equate, I mean, that's that's mostly to adults, but it has that fun tone of something like a um a home alone, even though that's that's a balls to the wall different type of thing. So you you know, you make fair points, Josh. But uh I just think overall you gotta look at this brand and and it's sad to me that he 
died when he did. He was, what, 60, 61. He had a heart attack. And I would have liked to have seen what he would have done since he has proven that he could change genres and he didn't get a chance to be part of the streaming revolution. And also to see what he would have said about like some of these problematic elements that he created. Yeah, you're right. And as you said, Molly Ringwald has had the chance to comment on that multiple times, and she's always been uh, more than, you know, forthcoming about it. And and we we are not able to hear what he has to say about it. Even in the later part of his life, before he died, he was very reclusive and he didn't give interviews and he didn't work uh, directly in Hollywood for for many, many years. So it would have been interesting to see if he would have kind of come back and become more involved, or if he would have just kind of sat at home and written scripts and sent them off, which was what he was doing in the later years of his career. Um, but I do think, and even with the teen stuff, it's been a long time since I saw Pretty in Pink, for example, but that I think is held up as an iconic John Hughes teen movie that, and he didn't direct it. In fact, I think it often gets confused, or yeah. maybe just me gets confused with this because it also stars Molly Ringwald. So I, I, I don't know that necessarily all of those, I mean, obviously we can't say what a movie would have been like if someone else directed it, but uh, I feel like maybe his strengths lied more in the writing than the directing. Well, it's not just that it starred Molly Ringwald, Josh, it's that the soundtrack is so important to it. Right. The speechy, you know, the speechifying, the emotional elements are so important to it. Like it's totally on brand for what John Hughes does, right? So I do think you'll like you have to look at him as his own genre. And it's so interesting to me that, like you said, he basically moved back to Chicago, left Hollywood and was like, I'll just write kids movies and like I'll have Beethoven one through 17 come out. And it's like, uh, I wonder what what would he have done? Because he's proven he could make adult movies with, you know, with a lot of different things. I think Planes, Trains is maybe the best example of that. So, yeah, I want to bring up one thing because the Long Duck Dong character who we said is like a, a very, very bad stereotype of a Asian foreign exchange student, right? Um, when Alan Yang, who was one of the co-creators of Master of None, which I love, as you know, one of my favorite shows. When he won show. an, yeah, when he won an Emmy for writing, he, in his speech, he said, uh, Italians have the Godfather, Goodfellas, Rocky, and the Sopranos. We've got Long Duck Dong, so we have a long way to go. But look at the examples he gave for the Italians, right? Most of those are mafiosos, right? Is that a good example? Don't you think a lot of Italians would be offended that that's who they are supposedly represented by? I mean, yes, those characters do rely on certain stereotypes of Italians as mafiosos, but I don't think that you could argue, and I hope you're not trying to argue, that Long Duck Dong is as layered and sophisticated a portrayal of an Asian character as the godfather is of Italians. I'm not arguing that at all. I'm saying I don't think a lot of Italians would like to be considered, hey, the representation of me is as a crime boss who will just kill people if they screw with my money or my business, you know? No, that's you know, true. As long as you guys are back on Long Duck Dung, I did want to mention one thing that, uh, you know, not to pile on the, the criticism of this movie, but it's not just his, you know, awful stereotype character, but the way other characters interact with them, I thought was also bad. I, I had written down one line. I forget who says it. One of the family members says, I hope you burn the sheets and mattresses after he leaves. Wow. I mean, that, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. That's <racist. laughs> So. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think that's the thing is that like, if this started from a stereotypical place, like for example, those de 
depictions of Italians, but then it expanded the character beyond that, you could argue that, okay, it's relying on stereotypes, but it establishes a distinctive character with their own identity, which I think you can say about all of those Italian characters. But it doesn't do that. All it does is double down on the offensiveness and enforce those stereotypes. There's nothing to him as a character, as a person. So, I mean, I, I, I think you're not wrong about the stereotypical ways that Italians can be portrayed in movies and have been portrayed in movies. And I'm sure Italians would agree that they would like a wider portrayal uh, of their nationality. But to argue that this is the same or even almost But that's on the not what spectrum, I was arguing. I was just taking a quote and saying that I think um, a lot of ethnicities that are portrayed in, in ways um, should be able to hopefully get better rep representation. That's all I was saying. And that's absolutely mm -hmm. true. That's absolutely true. This is certainly far from the only ethnic stereotype in films that should be right. handled but, better. You know, we covered UHF, where we see Getty Watanabe in another kind of stereotypical Asian character. And I mean, is that much better than this? I mean, I would say, yes, it is better because that character, as Dave was just pointing out, the way Long Dug Dong is treated in this movie is as if he's some sort of like hideous like creature or something, whereas there's a lot more affection for the character in UHF. But I definitely cringe and I love UHF. I definitely cringe at some of that stuff in UHF as, as relying a little too much on stereotypes. And I think Weird Al would probably say that if he made UHF right now, he wouldn't portray that character in the same way. Yeah, I wonder, you know, again, like <clears throat> Molly Ringwald's character says like, he's been here for five minutes and he's, or five hours and he gets laid or he's got a girlfriend and I'm like a disease. So it's like, it's funny that as negatively, or it's interesting that as negatively as that character is written and or portrayed, he has a better time than the main character does in this movie. You know? Right. And his function there is just to kind of contrast that. And it's, it's again, it's like, oh, this like horrible, like unappealing foreigner is getting laid and I'm not. And I think they could have used that in a way that didn't rely on the, the sort of othering and the disgust at him to still contrast him with the Molly Ringwald character. And I just think it, it just goes in the wrong direction at every possible turn. Yeah, we are not pro-donger here no. on uh, Awesome Movie Year. But I also want to say, you know who else I'm not pro is? Uh, the actor who played Jake Ryan, who I thought was, uh, you know, I'm, I give a lot of credit to John Hughes for the way he's able to work with teen actors. That was a Michael... Sheffling, I think yeah, is how it's not, pronounced. Not a good actor there, Josh. Looks like Matt Dillon doesn't have nearly the charisma or range of him. And uh, I know Viggo Mortensen was had uh, auditioned and that was who Molly Ringwald wanted to play the part. And that would have been much, much, much better. <laughs> that would have been quite interesting. Perhaps he would have murdered Samantha at the end. Well, of the he movie. was a teenage hunk back then. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's yeah. true. But I agree with you, and I think it's not just that Michael Scheffling is less charismatic than someone like Matt Dillon, which of course is true, but I think that character is really underwritten, that he's this object of, of, a, of romantic longing for Samantha, and we want them to get together, but I feel like we never really understand him as a person and why he doesn't want to be with Caroline, and he just kind of throws her aside in favor of Samantha. And I think there could have been more balance, and that's something where we spend so much time with long duck dong and with Samantha's 
ridiculous family that we could have spent that time with Jake instead and gotten a better sense of who he was and had uh, a more balanced romance to this movie. And I personally don't think that is a weakness of it because if, you know, we're going to go with the Pauline Kale view of it, of it's as simple as like this dude is the coolest guy and the biggest hunk in high school. You and I both know that uh, both men or boys and girls who were like the coolest and hottest could kind of do what they wanted in that regard of uh, jumping from romance to romance in high school. Well, yeah, that's true. But the movie is trying to portray him as someone who's more sensitive than that. The idea here is that he's not just the hunky, most popular guy in school, that he has some soulfulness to him. And that's what drives him to want to be with Samantha instead of his popular, vapid girlfriend. And I just don't think we get enough sense of why that is or how that is. And, you know, wanting her to be with him more than just because he's hot. And so I think that that was a little, a little lopsided there. And, and his, his kind of bland performance doesn't help sometimes if that's underwritten, but the actor brings something that you can sense a lot more beneath the surface, then it's okay. And he just doesn't really bring that. Yeah. Um, that's fair. All fair, Josh. Uh, like I said, we got a little Paul Dooley in there who we liked from Slapshot and those scenes with the parents where they apologized to Molly Ringwald, uh, were not originally in the script and both those actors, Dooley and, uh, who played the mother? Oh, I'm not sure the name of that actor uh, now. Oh, well, if Dave, if you want to look that up, go for it. Uh, they both fought for those scenes to say like, Hey, we don't want to just be like, you know, inconsiderate parent or like idiot parent and like they they gave him a little depth there so um so that was good the other big thing was just how essential the soundtrack is and and we get more of that going forward in the the hughes branded uh movies you know yeah and i think those are two things that i will give credit to the movie for and i think those actors were absolutely right and especially the scene with the dad which is a longer scene than the one with the mom where he apologizes is is one of the mo- the nicest, most sensitive scenes in the movie, and really highlights Samantha as a character and the love that she has for her family, despite her frustrations with them. So those are good scenes, and I I wish we had more of that kind of thing, uh, and less of the grandparents being wacky and and grabbing her breasts. And and the soundtrack too is absolutely important, and and we should give credit to John Hughes for for sort of pioneering this approach and putting all of these pop songs and and modern songs, songs that teenagers would have listened to at the time, filling this movie with them and using the popularity of the soundtrack to fuel the popularity of the movie. Um, that is absolutely a key element here that I think is is well done. Yeah. And the musical supervisor, Ira Newborn has said like he was kind of shocked at how in touch Hughes was with the current music and what was popular with teenagers, but it's not just that he used it to fuel the popularity, but he used it efficiently to raise the emotional stakes of the movies. Yeah. The songs are all, they come at the right moments and they are appropriate. I mean, I think as opposed to those sound effects, the songs come in and, and enhance that storytelling rather than distracting from it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know, what's interesting is, you know, we covered say anything in 89, which is a better movie than this. But yes. it was it was fun to see, but you could totally tell the influence from this to that, and also uh, see the growth of John Cusack, who has a little bit part in this one. Yeah, that's true. Both both Cusacks, Joan. She's is so in this funny. As well. She's really funny in this. Just yeah, yeah. She makes the most of her screen time. 
Yes. And that's one, I think that's another character that people sometimes point out as problematic. And I feel like that's less uh, offensive <laughs> you know, on the scale of Wait, offensiveness. Why is, she, why is she problematic? I mean, that she's disabled and they're like making fun of her disability. But I think it's less about that and more, you know, making fun of sort of the way that no one cares or accommodates her. Yeah, so. I didn't take that. I didn't get that, that they were making fun of the disability. So. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree. And I think that's that's a way that you can use that. You can find humor in that without just going to like the most offensive thing. Um, I think that was that worked better there. All right, Josh. Well, I think uh, we've summed this one up unless you have anything else you'd like to add here. No. Do we want to rate this out of, well, 16 candles? That's too many. Candles. We can <laughs> rate it out of out of five candles. I don't know. Or something else. How about how about uh, instead of that, we do it out of um, five muscle relaxers on your wedding day? Josh. Oh, yeah, that's there another you go. bit that doesn't work. So, yes, out of five, Jason, what do you want to give it? I give it three muscle relaxers, Josh. All right. I, I'm going to give it a two out of five. Like I said, I just it, just, it just didn't work for me this time. It, I, didn't, I didn't enjoy it. So, Dave, what did you think? I'm going with a two and a half right between you guys. All right. All right. I think that that's fair all the way through. Yeah. So we'll come back then in a moment and talk about the legacy of 16 Candles. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1984, we've been talking about our debut feature pick, John Hughes's 16 Candles. And, and we've talked a lot about the legacy here already, especially the legacy of John Hughes's career. Of course, he was already successful here, but this is what really launched him into that defining place as a teen movie auteur, which he continued through the 80s and then kind of shifted into that more adult-oriented uh, films and then the family films in the 90s. And although he did die young, he stopped directing far before that. The last movie that he directed was in 1991, uh, was Curly Sue, and he didn't he didn't pass away until 2009. Yeah, he was the, probably the most prolific writer, and maybe had the best connect percentage of any Hollywood writer ever. You know, he was like we said, a lot of the things he didn't direct was because he was so busy writing scripts and and everything. And it's like he has this. Um, you know, this kind of uh, legendary aura around him because of that. But some of it is like weird. Like, you know, the story of it is uh, he was looking through headshots of uh, actresses and he came upon Molly Ringwald's headshot and then he like hung it up above his desk and then wrote this whole movie for her without ever even meeting her, <laughs> you know, like um, and I could see how like back in the day that'd be like, whoa, what a what a story. But now it's like, <laughs> yeah, that is a little creepy. Although, as we're saying, I mean, he also had an eye. I mean, Anthony Michael Hall was someone he also picked out of, you know, over Jim Carrey. Oh, but, uh, well, that's hmm. probably a good choice there. I think that was better right for the role. So uh do you, Jason, do you have a, I mean, we talked a lot about, do you have a favorite John Hughes movie or maybe even a favorite John Hughes written but not directed movie? I like uh, like a lot of these movies. And I, I think, you know, you, you had said uh, the teen movies lasted through the 80s, but they really didn't last through the 80s. They went from about 83 to, or 84 to 87, which was it, you know? So, <laughs> right. Um, and that tells you just how impactful it was. Of the teen ones, I like The Breakfast Club the best. 
of all the movies, I like planes, trains, and automobiles the best. And but I love uh, Home Alone every 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 Christmas. I love watching it. So yeah, I think Home Alone is is the right kind of balance for those ridiculous family movies. And he wrote a lot of those that were not the right balance and that were way too broad and and uh, loud and annoying. But I think Home Alone actually kind of holds up. And uh, I do love the vacation. I mean, we talked about, we did a whole episode on Christmas Vacation, which I think is great. And and the original Vacation is really entertaining as well, um, as far as movies that he wrote, but did not direct. The final film that John Hughes wrote, do you uh, do you know that one, it's Jason? Drill, is it Drillbit Taylor? It's Drillbit Taylor. <laughs> yeah. So not exactly. Again, he was, note. but he was making, you know, at this point it was like, Beethoven, it was, he was using pseudonyms and right. And like Beethoven 18 was out or something like that. Right. Too, right. Right. So, yeah. You know, I mean, that, that's where he went. He went into the, the full on family mode and, it, and he was incredibly successful with it. So that he was. You know, so um, hey, what about you? Actually, you know what? We didn't mention Ferris Bueller. Fer- I mean, we did before, but not as one of our favorites here. Ferris Bueller is fuck. It's great. It's an awesome yes. movie. So. I, I, no, I mean, I agree. And I haven't seen it in a long time, but I certainly remember that being the one that I loved the most, you know, as a teenager. I, I think Home Alone's always been a favorite of mine. And then, like, as far as those teen ones, probably The Breakfast Club as well. I mean, I think everybody would probably agree with that. Yeah, and I think that's one that maybe has held up better than 16 Candles has. But this did also, as we mentioned, it launched really the, the big teen icon careers for Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall. It helped that then they were both also in The Breakfast Club. And both of them, I think, you know, are still probably most strongly associated with the work that they did as teenagers, although they both continue to act regularly. Molly Ringwald kind of transitioned into playing a lot of moms. She plays uh, Archie's mom on Riverdale currently. So, you know, another basically the the modern maybe equivalent of, of what John Hughes was doing in a way. I mean, it's the the the. The popular angsty, teen yeah. teen thing. Yeah. Um, and I think it's funny that Anthony Michael Hall in his later career often ends up playing tough guys and kind of enforcer types almost. And, you know, started out as playing this wispy geek. And that was what he was known for. He's good, man. Anthony Michael Hall, I don't think gets the credit he deserves as an actor a lot of the time. But like I said, even going from this to The Breakfast Club, you see a real, you know, transformation. Uh, also, Anthony Michael Hall, one of the worst stints on Saturday Night Live ever. The season he, Joan Cusack, and Robert Downey Jr. were on one season, right? So Molly Ringwald has said, you know, over time that they had so many offers and opportunities to make a sequel to the movie. And she wanted to eventually when a script called 32 Candles came her way, which was about these characters 16 years later. But she wouldn't have done it without John Hughes. And we should mention that, you know, uh, Illinois, man, he nobody put Illinois on the map more than John Hughes, right? That he did. And isn't that a whole storyline? And is it Jay and Silent Bob, uh, one of their movies where they want to find Shermer, Illinois, the place where the John Hughes movies took place, which was (laughs) fictional? I think that is is, is an essential. Kevin Smith, definitely a big John Hughes fan. I want to say one thing that, again, is so strange to me. You know, so Hughes had this idea of like basically having his repertory company and that's why he had Molly Ringwald and then Anthony Michael Hall. And he was using he wanted to use all these like actors repeatedly. And a lot of them, you know, he did find a lot like Andrew McCarthy, we know, from it's Pretty in Pink and uh, Judd Nelson from, you know, kind of uh, The Breakfast Club. Not to say they hadn't done other things, but that's kind of like where they pop. But then 
uh, after, you know, Anthony Michael Hall had done three movies with him and he, he was originally supposed to be Ducky in Pretty in Pink and he turned it down because he thought it was just going to be, you know, something he's done before, which it was something he did before, right? And Molly Ringwald after Pretty in Pink did the same thing where she was like, I don't want to keep, I want to do different things. And he just like, stop talking to them forever. You know, I don't think they ever reconciled. And it's a very strange thing that that would happen. I don't really understand that. Not that I, not that I know that anyone understands that even them, but it's weird that they were so close. And then, you know, they turned him down for a few movies and then they all just stopped talking forever. Yeah. I mean, he seems like this kind of inscrutable figure in a way. And I mean, just like the, the way he left Hollywood and became this weird, this kind of recluse in his later years. And it's hard to blame those actors for wanting to branch out and not play the same role over and over again. And I mean, John Hughes himself, obviously, as we pointed out, branched out and did different kinds of movies. And there's no reason he couldn't have cast them in different kinds of parts. So that is a, that is kind of a strange right. Thing. And he clearly had an eye for talent. Like, yeah, he was going to find good talent no matter what he did. So. Right. Right. I mean, hey, we work with John Candy a lot, so that was good. <laughs> right, and gave him different <laughs> kinds of roles. The last slide, we, we talked about Michael Scheffling, and this was basically the biggest thing that he ever did. As Jake Ryan, he retired from acting in 1991 after making only a handful of other movies, and uh, now uh, makes custom furniture, is what he does. So you can buy mm. a chair. Um, but was recently back in the news because his daughter, named Scarlett, is uh, a model and also an aspiring actress and has been kind of uh, active on social media and got him back in the news lately. But he's he's very much shunned the spotlight in the last like 30 years or so. That's, that's cool. And, and I know, you know, I think the biggest takeaway is this idea of this as a single film versus as part of that, that huge train. And I don't think like, like no other person has had an entire genre a subgenre of teen movies like that were specifically his. And I don't, I just think you have to like look at them. I know we have to look at them individually, but overall as a kind of piece as well. I mean, I, I don't think it's, you doesn't deny his influence to say that this movie is not a great movie. Uh, I mean, and I'm not trying to do that. So, I mean, just like any filmmaker who has a large body of work, you go to the each individual movie and you can say, well, this this one has these strengths and this one has these other strengths and maybe this one isn't as good. You know, I mean, we we just we talked about Woody Allen, for example, in Annie Hall. And like you can look at the body of work that Woody Allen did and certainly created a subgenre of his own. But that doesn't mean there aren't lots and lots of bad Woody Allen movies. And I'm not and I'm not saying that, Josh. I'm just saying that Hughes, especially as a teen movie, the this is not his best one, but this is part of an ongoing catalog of them. And, you know, when we talk about something like Say Anything or Can't Hardly Wait or something like that, those are very, very much influenced by this film. Yeah, this is certainly part of his his influence. I think maybe his other stuff is is more important there, but you... I'm not trying to discount the, the influence of this film. It certainly is there. Super bad, too. There you go. Uh, all of that stuff definitely uh, it, it plays in. It's 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 a it's a sort of spectrum or a continuum of of this these influences that come through and then are are they evolve and people add elements and but John Hughes is still an essential aspect of what people look at when they make teen movies now. That's true. Yeah, when I had this like hot minute in Hollywood, Josh and people were like liking a lot of the stuff I was writing. Uh, they were they were always saying we like the. 
the heart comes through. It's got this John Hughes feel to it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I, that, that would be good. That would be nice if I could. Yeah. That's that, that. That's what I'm going for. So. Right. Yeah. Jason Harris, the next John Hughes. It could, it could still happen. I don't think it's happening, but well, uh, it's a nice compliment to get when someone, you know, says that about your movie anyway. So. Of course, of course it is. So that is 16 Candles, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. You can follow us on social media. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Not so great. Uh, we're at AwesomeMovieYear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. Don't forget SpaceJam.com. Do, do forget spacejam.com. <laughs> but you can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. And if you check out the By David Rosen Patreon, we've got some bonus content there from our previous 1977 season and great stuff from Dave's music and piecing it together. So sign up for that. Maybe we'll get up to double digit patrons someday. Probably 16. Not. 16. All right. Yes. It's a good goal. That's good a good goal. goal. One, one for each candle. So Jason, what do we have on our next episode? Josh. You might not have liked this uh, movie that we talked about today, but apparently nobody in the world liked the movie we're covering in the next episode. It's our box office flop, Streets of Fire. And I think actually a lot of people do like that movie, although maybe they didn't at the time. So tune in next time for Streets of Fire, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. 